All right, well, we only have a half hour left. Um, do you have any questions about what we were talking about with the filling of the Spirit in the last hour? Mary. figure for cooperating with God in your sanctification and living obediently. You know, we, we tend to think of filling probably be, probably because of charismatic practice in the theology. We tend to think of filling and speaking in tongues as sort of being somehow related and speaking in tongues when it happens is obviously something that just starts, you know, for whatever reason. I don't think filling is like that. I think filling is quiet and unobtrusive. I think it's evident when it's happening simply because you look at this believer who happens to be filled and he or she is doing what she ought to be doing as a child of God. It's not spectacular. Um, It's not visibly miraculous. I think it comes and goes. I think we know that when we're walking in sin, we're not filled. But I'm not sure that you really have a sensation, per se, of being filled. You just, if you stop and think about it, you say, you know, things are going pretty well right now. I'm close to the Lord. I see myself obeying Him. I can actually see people around me responding well to me and being blessed by me. And, you know, so I don't think it's something that we need to be looking for. I think it's something we should be striving for, but not striving for it in the sense of expecting something spectacular to happen. We just think we need to love God enough to love His Word and to believe it and to say, Lord, I want to obey it. I want to live the way You want me to. Help me to do it. And then you step out and do it. You know, in whatever area it might be of, of your life. You know, that you've probably heard me I don't know if that's a very good example. But you may have heard me talk about the time I almost threw Caleb out the bedroom window. (laughs) Oh, he definitely deserved it. Caleb Caleb was a very colicky baby. And for the first six or eight months of his life, at least, he never slept for more than 45 minutes at a time. And his cycle was an hour and a half. It was 45 minutes up nurse or be fed, change, change him, put him down to sleep, and then he'd wake up again. And this is 24 hours. You know, I was in the middle of seminary, and and, um, it was murderous. You know, Myung got sick about it. She had an infection after she gave birth. She had to go into the hospital. I was left with Caleb to take care of him and Myung's grandmother, although grandmother was sort of taking care of him, too. Um, for about a week but you know after several months of this 
Myung and I were both just frazzled. And he wouldn't sleep at night except in this, what, you remember the mechanical swings? Well, we didn't, couldn't afford an electric one. We had a wind-up one that somebody gave us, and it ran for 15 minutes at a crank. <laughs> so I'd put him in there, crank it, and I'd lie down and sleep for 15 minutes, and then it would stop, and he'd start fussing, and I'd get up and crank it again, <laughs> go through this cycle three times, and then it was time to take him to me young, and she would nurse him. Of course, she could sleep while she was nursing. So she'd nurse him, and when she was done, I'd take him in the other room, I'd change him, and I'd put him back in the swing and crank it up, and we'd start the whole process again. And it was just, it was rough. And one night, he started crying, and I went in the other room, and I just got furious. And I, you know, I really wanted to pick him up and throw him out the window. And I could understand why men pick up their babies and shake them until they die. I understand that feeling. And <laughs> well, what really happened was I saw myself getting angry, and then all of a sudden I got deathly scared and realized that I was contemplating violence toward my son. And I, what's that? <laughs> Nothing worked. Nothing worked. We should have tried bourbon, but we didn't think of it. Um, yeah. But anyway, I got, I got so scared, and I got down on my knees, and I said, Lord, I cannot do this. Right now, I would like to kill my son. I can't handle this. You've got to do it. I know what you want me to do, but I can't do it. I said, you've got to help me do it. I got up off my knees, and I picked him up, and I cared for him, and changed his diaper and put him in the swing and cranked it again. And I think that that was the filling of the Holy Spirit. You know, it was him enabling me to do what I knew that I should do, but what I wasn't capable of doing on my own. And it's a matter of believing the truth and saying, Lord, I want to obey, but I don't have the power. you got to give it to me, and then you do it. And, you know, there was no halo over my head, I assure you. But he enabled me to do what I could not do on my own. And I think that's kind of an illustration of the filling of the Spirit. Yes? Let's say connect to the thing with this filling that you're talking about here and spiritual gifts. I know you said something about this is temporal. Well, okay. We'll talk about spiritual gifts either next week or the week after. I guess we only got two weeks left. Um, spiritual gifts are, I believe, special abilities that God bestows upon believers at the time of salvation. Um, and there are a number of them. They're listed in the Scripture. I think they're kind of like talents. I mean, some of us are athletically talented. Some of us are good at fixing things. Some of us are good, you know, handling money. I'm not talking about spiritual gifts now. I mean, you know, some people are good musicians. I think spiritual gifts are kind of like that, but spiritual gifts are all designed for the benefit of others in the body. And their real purpose is to draw the body together in mutual dependence so that the unity which God wants that brings him glory will actually be manifested in the group. Um, I think that 
like filling, it takes effort to exercise one's spiritual gifts. Um, you know, just, I mean, it takes effort for a musician to make music, but a good musician will always make better music than somebody who has no musical talent. And it's probably true that a person with a spiritual gift in a particular area will be particularly effective at that, whereas somebody else doing the same thing may not be quite as effective. Um, <coughs> you you could probably you could probably say that one's spiritual gift should be exercised in a concept in a context of being filled by the spirit. Um, you know, if, if assuming I have the spiritual gift of teaching, if I were to exercise that gift when I was out of fellowship with God or for my own personal aggrandizement or something, I don't think it's going to be as effective, and it certainly wouldn't be in the context of being filled. So, like everything else we do when we exercise our spiritual gifts, we should do it in reliance upon God for the purposes which God wants to be accomplished. Okay? And maybe that's the closest connection that I could think of right now. It's a good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer. Okay. Um, let's move on to eschatology. We only have about 20 minutes. Did you all get the new set of notes over there? Okay. There's, if you didn't, you can get it on the way out. Or you can get it now. Um, those notes cover not by any means all the passages on eschatology in the New Testament, but those passages which I hope to cover in the rest of the course. And you'll notice on the title there, it says eschatology in the New Testament, not revelation. I mean not the book of revelation. I don't mean not by divine revelation. That was badly worded. Okay? Um, yeah, okay, good. All right. It was what? Oh, that, 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 if I put an S on the end, that would have done it, right? <laughs> Revelations. I always pick on people who call it the book of Revelations, in case you don't know that. All right, well, tonight I want to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and perhaps a couple other passages. I'm not sure we're going to get there. So turning your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 18. Now, 1 Thessalonians was written before 1 Corinthians. And so this passage that we're reading is probably the first clear passage in the New Testament on the rapture. Paul says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's obviously a euphemism, right? Dead believers lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Now, if you look at verse 18 and verse 13, you see the words sorrow and comfort. The reason Paul brings this topic up is that between the time that he had planted the church in Thessalonica and the time that he wrote this letter, somebody, maybe one or two or several of the believers in Thessalonica, had died. And those who are left behind are wondering, you know, what's going to happen to them? And Paul says, when the Lord comes in the rapture, those who have already died in Christ will not be left behind. Now you have to think about this carefully. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if if you die today, your body gets left behind on earth, but your spirit goes into the Lord's presence. Now Paul says... The Lord, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now when he says they will rise first, I believe what's being pictured is that when he comes down into the upper atmosphere above the earth, he will be accompanied by the disembodied spirits of those who have already died. And the picture is that there will be bodies may be formed on the earth that will go up and join their spirits and those people will suddenly become whole in the sense that they will have a physical body to go with their spirit slash soul. Okay? It's a resurrection. It's the regaining of a physical body. Now, I think we talked at one point about 2 Corinthians chapter 5 chapter, don't turn there now, but we had some discussion as to whether there is an intermediate physical body. Some people think that between the time of your death and the time of your resurrection, you have some kind of a physical body, or at least a sense of a physical body. Okay, I don't know the answer to that question. It's debatable. You can read the passage either way, quite frankly. Are you looking at me funny, Belen? Uh, well, you can look at that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think verses 1 through 8. And depending on how you read it, it might imply that there's some kind of physical body between the time of your death and the time of your resurrection. But what we're told here is the dead in Christ will rise first, in verse 17, then we who are alive and remain, those who haven't died before the rapture, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, we will discuss the time of the rapture uh, probably next week, but turn with me to John chapter 14, if you will. I think we looked at this passage two or three weeks ago, but let's look at it again. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. My Bible says mansions. Apartments or dwellings would be a better translation. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, this passage, which was not apparently about the rapture when Jesus spoke, in other words, the people who listened to these words,
words, hadn't been told about the rapture, and it wasn't clear that he was talking about such a thing as a rapture. These verses are actually very important because they say that where Jesus goes after he dies, he is going to come and take believers back there with him. Okay? Now, the reason that's important is that there is some debate as to whether the rapture comes at the beginning or the end of the seven-year tribulation. Most people argue that it either comes at the end or at the beginning. Now, I'm a pre-tribulationist, and most of you are. If the rapture was at the end of the tribulation, and if the tribulation ends with the second coming, where Christ comes down to the earth, and from that point forward, he rules on the earth, then there would be no way that he'd be taking anybody back to the Father's house. Right? John 14 tells us that that's his goal. Now you put that together with what is said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It says, we will meet the Lord in the air. It never says anything about coming down to the ground. So what happens is the Lord comes down, he gets us, and then he goes back. It's kind of like an airlift, if you will. And we go back to the Father's house, and we will be up there in the Father's house during the time of the tribulation and then we will return to earth with him at the end of the tribulation. Now you have to put 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 together with John 14 to make that clear. And once you put those two things together, you pretty much rule out the idea that the rapture is here. It isn't. Now there are a lot of other reasons why it's not there, but that's one big reason. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Okay, now let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The major topic of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what? One word, resurrection. Okay, Paul goes through a long description of the importance of the resurrection, of Christ's resurrection in particular. And then in verse 51 he says... Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means what? Die. But we shall all be changed. This is on our nursery, right? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It is so corny, but it's funny. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. It's the same event that's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Now again, Paul is picturing this event in which Christ comes down, in which the dead in Christ are raised and in which the living in Christ join them and go back up. Okay? So, you know, for, it, it's interesting to ask, why do the dead in Christ have to come down here to get resurrected? I don't know the answer to that question. But resurrection seems to happen on earth. Okay, or near earth. But they come down, they will be joined with us, and they will go up. Now, um... Back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, those who sleep 
in Jesus? Okay, that phrase there suggests to me, and most premillennialists and pre-tribulationists would agree with this, that those who will be resurrected at the rapture, the dead who will be resurrected at the rapture, are only church-age saints. They're only those who were saved by belief in the gospel of Christ since the time of his resurrection. Old Testament saints who are also saved by grace through faith will not be resurrected until the second coming. Okay, and you can see that in Revelation chapter 20. There are also hints of it in Hebrews chapter 11. Okay? But it's important to keep that clear in your heads. The rapture is for the dead in Christ. It's for church-age saints. It's not for all believers of all ages. At least that's the way I understand it. Okay? Um, yeah, it's, it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 14. God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Okay? It's really stated twice. Right? Any questions on this? The, the, the actual nature of the rapture is not difficult to understand. The challenge is the timing. And I've given you some of that information. Vicki, you had a question? Okay. Um, okay. Oh, the dwelling places? No, I think it's I think it's very literal. I think um, when Jesus says, "I go there to prepare a place for you," I think what he's talking about is the thing that will be called the New Jerusalem that will come down from heaven at the end of the millennium. Um, have I have I ever told you about the Jewish wedding procedure and all that and how this goes together? Okay, let's do that. <coughs> At the time of Jesus, the way that a Jewish young man would marry his bride kind of worked like this. There would be a betrothal. The betrothal would be a contract that would be made between the husband's family and the bride's family. That betrothal could be made when the kids were a year old, or it could be made sometime later. Now, once that document was signed, they were legally married, but they, they may not have ever seen each other, they certainly haven't had a physical relationship. Now, the young man would have a responsibility to learn a trade and in preparation for the actual starting of their married life, he would typically build an apartment on the side of his dad's house or on his dad's property. When that was prepared with no warning, although there might be rumors going out, with no warning, some night, he and a bunch of his buddies would go running across town to the bride's house, knock on the door, the bride's there, and she goes, I'm surprised. The groom picks her up, throws her over his shoulder. She's supposed to have a bunch of her virgin friends waiting, and all t together they run back to the father's house. Okay. Then the groom takes his bride, goes into the apartment, consummates the relationship right there, and after that, they come out and have a big party. 
Now, we've got it backwards. We have the party first and the consummation second. They would have the consummation first and the party second. Now, once the betrothal contract is made, they're considered legally married, but that can be severed by divorce as long as they haven't consummated the, the marriage. And that's why Joseph was said to be a righteous man when it was said that he wanted to divorce Mary. Okay? Once they consummate the marriage, the marriage is permanent and unbreakable. But what's important about this for, for our purposes is that we are betrothed to Christ as the church. He has gone back to the Father's place. He's preparing dwellings for each one of us in the Father's house. And he is going to come unannounced in the rapture, and he's going to take us back to the Father's house. And it's just like the Jewish wedding thing. And, you know, the parables in Matthew 25 that we looked at last time very briefly, the virgins who weren't ready, the idea is you know that the marriage is going to be sometime soon, but you don't know exactly when it's going to be. So a wise bride is going to keep herself, you know, all primped up and her eyelashes on and, you know, all dressed up and pretty because the groom is coming sometime soon and her friends are going to be all ready if they're smart and then the groom is going to come. Well, the rapture is very much like that. And the very fact that the rapture comes before the tribulation and there's nothing before it to allow the prediction of it matches the picture of the unexpected arrival of the groom. You know, the bride's there, she's waiting, she's thrilled, she, you know, maybe it'll be tonight, but I don't know. And the preparing of the dwellings up there very much fits that. And I do think that the dwellings in the Father's house that he is preparing are apartments in this huge thing that's going to be called the New Jerusalem that will come down from heaven at the beginning of the eternal state. It's mentioned in Revelation 21. And it's huge. you know. And I don't think these are little Hong Kong-style apartments with you know, rooms that are so small that you can't even get the bed in the door. You know, if you look at the size of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, it's huge. And whether it's a cube or it's a pyramid, if the floors in it were 20 feet high, I think there's more area in it than the entire area of the earth. So, you know, my apartment may have a basketball court. In it. I don't like basketball. Maybe it'll have a tennis court. In it. I don't know. But, you know, you can play games with all this, but he's preparing a place for us. So, and the other thing, Vicki, and, and I'm glad you asked whether it has a spiritual meaning. The other thing to be careful of, okay, many people look at this passage, particularly verse 3, and I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. A lot of people look at that and they say, Jesus is coming for me when I die. Sorry, he's not. I know you're not saying that, but he, Scripture says he must stay there until all things are prepared. There are not a bunch of little comings of Jesus to escort people back to heaven. He's not, you know, he'd be going like this. I mean, think how many people die in the space of a minute, right? He wouldn't do anything else. This is not talking about him coming to take a believer who dies and escort him back up to heaven. This is talking about the rapture. Does that make any sense? Okay. Other questions? 
Um, I don't really want to jump into any other passages. Do you have any other questions about either of these rapture passages or the rapture itself? You mentioned the, the body of the believers that have died. You know, if he comes and famously joins with their resurrected body, mm-hmm. would not their body be something like Christ's body before he was taken up? Our resurrection bodies will be like his resurrection body. And he's still got that resurrection body. Yes. It's the same body he's got now. Um, I, I, think, I think, though, what you're saying is important. The, the evidence, if you look at the evidence, and I think we did this in one of our classes, um, Christ's resurrection body had some interesting capabilities. It seemed to be able to pass through matter. It seemed to be able to change its appearance. Um, And yet it has this strange thing that it's still got visible wounds, but the wounds aren't bleeding. You know, some people attribute that that to the idea that the resurrection body doesn't have blood. Jesus says, I have flesh and bone, but he never says, I have blood. Um... I think that the body he had upon his resurrection is exactly the same body that he has now. But I think, I think its glory was veiled. I think our resurrection bodies will be glorious, not just in their capabilities, but you know, we may actually shine like stars. You know, Daniel chapter 12 talks about those who lead many to righteousness will shine like stars. Could be figurative, but it might actually mean that we'll glow like Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't know. Um, but I do think that he only got one resurrection body and it hasn't changed, as I understand it. Mm. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Mary. He said, Mary, don't touch me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. Okay. Um, I don't think he was saying that he didn't have his resurrection body. I think he was saying that I've got to go up. Remember I argued, you might remember this, and a lot of theologians think this, that Jesus actually ascended to the Father and then came back down for those 40 days and then went back up. Okay. When he said, don't touch me because I haven't ascended to the Father, I don't think it was because there was anything wrong with his body. I think it was just like, I got to go, kind of a thing. That's the best explanation I have. It may not be very good. It's a good question. It's a lousy answer. (laughs) All right. Um, Why don't we quit here? And uh, please, between now and next week, if you have time, read up in the pneumatology notes and the notes I gave you on eschatology in the New Testament. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've given us to study. Thank you also for the time to go before you in prayer. We commend the Let's to you. We commend Lindsay's family to you and all those who are grieving right now. We ask, Father, that you would enable them, among them, those who know you, and us to mourn, but not to mourn like those who have no hope. Thank you, Father, that the hope we have is not a hope-so hope. It's a no-so hope. 
We know that you will rescue us, that you will resurrect us. We know that death is a defeated enemy, although it still rears its ugly head. Please dismiss us with your blessing. Protect us as we travel and enable us to walk by your Spirit and to be filled by your Spirit through the days ahead. We pray this in your Son's name.